Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. And so I convinced Charlie to come with me to go to the pumpkin room, Charlie Colbert, because we became tight. And um, I think to Dennis and Ron and Al, I was the new drummer and that guy who played with these other groups, but I wasn't as close to them as I was to Charlie. And Charlie was kind of like the de facto leader of the group. And so I convinced Charlie to come to the pumpkin room and he said, I know her. Charlie already knew who she was. And I said, well, you, you looked at me like I was crazy. He said, yeah, but he said, but, you know, she's calling herself something else. He said, I, I, I didn't know her as a vet. And she married this some guy named Hassan Khan, this, this, this guy who makes believe he's a bass player, and she changed her name. She so said, that's what I know her by. He said, she's sat in at different places before. He said, I'm familiar with her. He said, the guys in the band would never go for her. I said, what are you talking about? He said, look at her. He said, how does Paulette look? Paulette is neat and clean, and, and it's the whole thing, he said, in, in the places that we work. I said, yeah, but Paulette's gone, going to be gone soon, and she doesn't have, I don't hear it. She has a good voice, but I didn't hear the same voice I heard when I heard Shaka singing. I tried for a couple of weeks. That was a hard sell and mentioned it to the other guys in the group. Now I've seen stories Paul told about how Shaka supposedly got in the group. She must've been dreaming, no offense, but um, that was totally orchestrated by your friend here in Charlie Colbert, because we spent too many nights down at the pumpkin room arguing about whether the other guys would be accepting of Shaka. And the problem was, is one, they had a problem with, the, with, with her upkeep, with the way she looked, and they thought she was kind of a wild child. And which bothered me because that, what does that have to do with her singing? In other words, I, I, I wasn't 
concerned with the rest of what they were talking about. All raw I talent. heard was that, all I heard was that raw talent. So, um, in essence, the, a deal was struck, and the deal that was struck is that if she joined the band, I was made responsible to get her to and from rehearsals to gigs because supposedly because we both lived on the same side of town. But it's like if you want her in the group, you have to be the babysitter because we know she's not 20 years old yet. So in essence, what people don't realize is I put myself up for some shit when I voted for that. All right. So I, I became the de facto babysitter. Paulette stayed a few more weeks uh, while Shaka was breaking in uh, as far as that was going along. The next thing is they gave me road money because Shaka had a cavity starting in the middle of her teeth. Her clothes were shit. So my job was to get, find clothes and make sure she got to the dentist. That happened. Also at the time, um, some women were into hair under their arm and few other things about tippy people. Well, in Chicago by 68, 69, 70, 71, that hippie thing was kind of dead. So some of the tribes of the black hippies that came up were a little late. <laughs> so they still had the accoutrements of the this, this symbolism and the style, but the actual communes were played out, all right? But they do things like uh, she'd be in a tribe of people, Shaka would, with four or five other folks who were quasi, you know, artists and they'd find a place that had been vacated or an apartment, you know, uh, and, and take over that place and run a line from a plug they found somewhere. I mean, they were doing that. They were swapping each other's clothes. So the clothes that I would buy Shaka, she was sharing them. And by the time she had to wear them on stage, they were dirty. Okay. So I had to deal with that. I had to deal with sometimes I had to go to her house and actually get in the street and go look for her go to a rehearsal to pick her up, all right? And so it was like I, I had serious babysitting. What was your age difference? She was 17 at the time. And so you were how many she, years older? She, she, hell, I'm 73 now. So you were kind of like a big brother in a way, right? Well, I, for quite a few years. <laughs> I, I sacrificed all kinds of stuff. To, to make sure that happened. Uh, e even the, the times when, uh, when Shaka was uh, heavily sedating herself, that used to scare us all to death because you never knew if you're going to wake up and you know, your business partner was going to be deceased. But you know, that's, that wasn't just Shaka. That was, you know, there was a lot of people going through that kind of crazy stuff. You know, I went through drugs myself, I just to that degree, that's all. Every, everybody does shit in varying degrees. <laughs> But it, it, was, it was a trip, you know. To me, Shaka would have always been a, a voice and a great energy, no matter what had happened with her. Even if the general public had never met her, even if it was just local, she would still be revered as this great voice, no matter what. Uh, the records and, the, and, and, and the, the, the concerts and all the things, it's just spread the word. But to me, a, a good energy or somebody talented it, it, it's not justified by, by uh, masses of people. My father used to say, you may put your life in the hands of fools then. 
So it, it, she, would, she would be good regardless, whether people clap for her or not, that's a natural talent. When Donnie Hathaway stepped out of that window of that hotel, okay, before he hit the ground, he still had that talent. And also, but another thing, I don't mistake talent for intelligence. I don't think because someone's talented that they have all seeing eye that they know exactly what to do, say, or act, because that wasn't the case. Shaka was young and immature. And um, when we became popular, there was no one to train her about certain things that were happening in the world and how they were happening. What, what, what was it like when you first got her in the studio? That must have been like a transition. It, it just winds up her learning proper mic technique and a few other things. She, she was a little gun shy. She had a little red light-itis. Sometimes, you know, when she knew the light was on, it meant somebody's capturing you. If they're capturing you, now you're in a position to be judged. That was psychological. She got past that. Most, most young entertainers do. Shaka threw all of her shit. That's a soldier. You knock her down, she gets back up. But the worst person to ever mess with her is her. Usually a lot of talented people are like that. Your own worst enemy is yourself. Can't nobody take Shaka out. The only one to take Shaka out is Shaka. Basically, she, she's like, uh, what's that ever-ready battery? <laughs> it just keeps on ticking. You know, so... Energizer no bunny. Yeah. yeah, so no matter what adverse things happen, no matter the drugs, no matter the strange people, no matter the crit and beautiful shit and wonderful things that have happened, it's all of that together. She's still... Um, She's still a soldier. She's still a soldier, man. You know, that's what I saw at the pumpkin room. Well, I, I mean, we didn't discuss this, but she's my favorite female singer of all time. Um, just incredible voice. And the fact that you saw it at that age, it's just a God-given thing, you know? Um, and, and, it's, and it's like um, when people tell me about other singers or they take me to a club or they send me tapes, it's, it's hard for me because I got a lot to compare it to, <laughs> you know, or somebody said, that girl sounds just like shock. And I said, no, she doesn't. <laughs> when, when I'm sitting up at MCA, right. And Andre Harrell, the president of Uptown Records is hyping me on this girl, Mary J. Bly. So I already knew about it. He's playing me some, some of the tracks done off the 411. Now, you know, my department, send him money every month. Uptown was funded by MCA, okay? So when the 411 came out, he's hyping me about the first single off the 411. Do you remember what that single was? Was a sweet thing? Yes. Yeah, the And cover. he's hyping yeah. me. First of all, he did no research. He didn't know who I was. P of A&R at MCA Records, the boss, Al Teller, sent him to come talk to me now. First, he was talking to Al. But when they hired me, they start sending me everybody they didn't want to talk to. So Harrell comes in my office and he's hyping me about Mary J. Blige and he puts on Sweet Thing. And I, I wasn't impressed <laughs> because at the time I thought Mary was a little sharp and flat. Yeah. Okay. So, and not only that, but the energy. Okay. If you're going to copy a song, do it your way or kick the shit out of what you remember. 
and it was in the middle. So I looked at him and I wasn't that impressed. And I said, eh, that's okay. That was going to be the first single. His problem was is there's a whole groupings of stations you want to get your record on, okay? And what you try to do is set up your promotion in advance. And a, a lot of times, some of the younger people who were trying to get their records happening thought it was about paying off somebody and not knowing about allegiances and alliances. And my whole time with Rufus, when the guys were out getting drinks and trying to catch a girl, I was sitting having drinks with the rack jobbers, with the people who worked in the factory who actually are the ones who packed the boxes of the records who worked in that region of the country. So the people who actually did the work were the folks that I would send tickets and cards to and invite to places, okay? Where the other ones were worried about an executive or a girl, all right? Or a guy, whatever the case may be. So mine was more like my father. Uh, so the people that I became friends with were Red Forbes and Mickey Wallachs and uh, Arlene Seschel and Earlene Fisher. These were all top promotional people for Otis Smith at ABC Dunhill. Okay, these are folks that sometimes would go out with 11 singles in their hand and still get them all played. Uh, that's when they weren't hiring independents to come into a marketplace that you already had a, a promotional person in. I found out years later that you hired the indie who usurped the credibility of your own staffer in that region because the indie was giving you kickback. It's bullshit. Also, the record company never tells you how many cleans they pressed up. One of the processes of the selling of the CDs was, you're a mom and pop store. I give you a box of 10 with barcode. You sell those 10 across the barcode, which also may go to SoundScan. But then I'll give you five or six with no barcode. That means when you sell it, the money goes in your pocket. It's not accounted for. That's a legitimate way for me to pay you off without money passing hands. Okay, but those cleans, are they part of the promotional records in the contract that says the company can press up? Or should that be part of the records manufactured that sold that should be attributed to the profit and loss line of what you got to pay me in royalty? Also, what group has exact sales figures? None. Because when you audit, it means they pay you off because you got close. When you get close, it means you know the practices in which they're treating everyone and they're ripping off. It's like the movie where the guy's running and it seems like that that's it seems like the more he runs, the farther it gets away. You know, that little effect they do in the film, that's royalties. <laughs> or they cross-collateralize, meaning, well, I know it's sold in this region. Can't you just pay me for that? Well, no, we put it all in one pot. Well, what happens if it's a download? And you don't have to hold money on the side for returns because it's no longer in the physical realm, which means you're holding money on the side in case somebody doesn't sell the record, which means they return it, which means you got to eat what you spent to manufacture, what you spent to put it in the truck, and what you spent to promote it. Okay, so you hold more than you should in abeyance saying, well, it might come back. Well, also that money's gaining interest. Who collects that? Well, you say, well, since I'm the bank, I should be the one. 
And also when you make a contract, are they giving you 25 points or 12% or 12 points off of 100? No, it doesn't start off off of 100. There's still clauses in old recording contracts that, that had to do with, with uh, 1902 with a glass cylinder breaking in a fucking horse pulled wagon. There's breakage clauses and then art clauses, you know? So is the artwork on a CD the same as, as big and, and, and doing the same thing like on an album? Or telling me that lacquer's scarce, you, you, so we're going to go to CDs? You went to CDs because Panasonic bought MCA and Sony bought Columbia. They manufacture CD machines. So we tell everybody that this is the best way to encapsulize everything and lacquer's dead. Okay, it's because all of the companies didn't own a lacquer pressing plant. The larger companies did. Okay, and the ones who got their shit pressed first was was the company uh, assigned to the company. Same Conflicts with of interest, with, yeah. Same with CBS. Where did CBS's records get pressed? In Canada. Is that the same price as a dollar? If they're going to recoup something, is it from the Canadian cost or is it from the, the American cost. If it was made in Canada, it costs less, but you're charging me American prices. It's like, it's just game. It's like pimping. So wow. after, after, after a while, that mixed with the creativity, with the human condition, with people's uh, lack of admitting they needed therapy or to talk to someone, because that was frowned upon, especially in the black community having to do with, with mental illness or just the fact of having to talk to someone about whatever emotionally you were going through. Um, the, the drugs that proliferated everywhere, you know, instead of some street urchin or criminal bringing you drugs, it was, an, it was, an, it was a lawyer, okay, or, or some executive. So in other words, it, it wasn't classist as, as far as only poor people or criminals do this. It was everyone. Okay, and all of it was downward spiral. And, and a lot of people's persona or the perception of what you were worth was not determined by you. It was determined by a company which was selling what, what they wanted people to think you were. So it's like, no one's writing their own epitaph. They're all self-medicating. You know, it's like the, it's like the joint's going to hell in a handbag. <laughs> So people expect for the groups to be solvent and sane and healthy in the midst of all of this. It's hard. And the touring was hard. And a matter of fact, most hotels that had a house band, if you're on tour and you stay in a hotel with a bunch of other group members, usually it's only for the night. What happens is, is if there's a lounge there, that lounge gets taken over when we get to the hotel. And the best music I've ever heard, including even Patti LaBelle singing, was, was in, in, in a, a, a small club in a hotel with the musicians from the tour playing with just people from the tour there in the room and a sprinkle of whatever general public had been there. Those were better than any concerts because the concert, if you play, when Rufus played an hour, we were used to playing 545s a night. When people said Bruce Springsteen's doing a three-hour concert, oh, I said, oh, yeah, that's great. That's two hours less than his normal club gigs he used to do at my father's place. 
in Long Island, you know, and Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes and the Beaver Brown Band. I saw all them people. I had a girlfriend stayed a block from from that joint. You know, so all, all I'm saying is, is that by the time you finish the concert after an hour, you're just now warmed up. Now you're in the dressing room and going back to the hotel, knowing you got to catch a flight and go to the next joint. We wind up going to the lounge of the hotel and paying the musicians to sit down and play in their instruments or have our road guys bring the stuff to us. We all had, after a while, we had road kits. I had a case with a tape recorder in it. And, and if I had song ideas, they just rolled it into my room. You know, or if, if anybody was too high or if, if Shaka was out of it, a road guy, uh, our road manager, Bruce Wayne, who'd been uh, 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 Delaney and Bonnie's road manager and uh, Vanilla Fudge. Um, uh, he managed Billy Preston. Uh, not, not managed, but road managed. That's who worked for Bob Ellis Silverstein. That was Diana Ross's husband. That was our manager. All right. So when Bruce would go out, he'd some way get a hold of the master key. And the road guys would go in your room, even if you were asleep, pack you up. And by the time you had to leave in the morning, even if they had to stick you in a wheelchair, you made that plane because if you missed the plane, you messed up money. Okay? So, I, I mean... It runs the gamut, man. You, you better keep me on track. I've got too much information up here. Yeah, well, I, so, I, wanted, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you about um, the sound of Rufus because it evolved over time. You know, at the beginning, yeah. it seemed to have more of a rock flavor, and then it became more R&B. Um, who most influenced that sort of direction in terms of the, the sound? Yeah, but first of all, if you ask... If you ask um, if you ask, uh, uh, what say Wilson Pickett or um, uh, the guy who did uh, Leon Haywood or other artists that that I consider R and B, most of those musicians didn't consider Rufus straight R and B. For some reason, it it had a, a little rock and something else in it. Uh, if you put our record next to other bands that were considered like, like Confunction or uh, uh, some of the other, other groups, like the group that did Car Wash, Rolls Royce, or other ones. We didn't sound anything like them, or the Ohio players. Well, there was more pop and rock and jazz sensibilities flowing through it. It definitely yeah. was its own thing. But, you know, like a Rags to Rufus, you know, still had like a little rockier flavor to it, you know, than even Rufus Eyes did, or, um, you know, this one. It was a little... It, it changed a little, a little less guitar soloing, you know. First, first of all, the, the weakest link for me as a musician was Kevin Murphy. Uh, Kevin was an adequate player. He, he, he wasn't Ron Stockard. Ron Stockard was an exemplary player to me. Um, Kevin, I thought, was solid once he learned his part. But every night, Kevin would play that same part like clockwork, he would never deviate. Where, where Ron or Al or Dennis, when every night we played something, there was something that we made slightly different. And sometimes it's almost like a tone poem. We were listening to each other to have some fun, see what we do different in this one section of a song. Uh, Kevin was an odd man out, but, but, he, but he always did his part so no one could complain, you know. 
as far as that's concerned. When Bobby and Tony, who I played with in high school, who I brought to the group when Al, Dennis, and uh, uh, Ron quit, uh, when they quit the band, uh, that's after Tell Me Something Good was picked as a single. Uh, if they thought that was going to be a hit, they didn't want to play that song for the next 20, 25 years because they'd already had success before, especially Al. And also that song, to be truthful, was done by us as a joke because when Stevie came to the studio, we felt that, that uh, Stevie came to the studio because he, he was checking Chaka out. It didn't have anything to do with giving us a great Stevie Wonder song. And uh, I, I attribute to Ollie Brown and Ray Parker Jr., who played with Stevie. Those are the two people I contacted, not Bob Monaco or anybody else, to bring Stevie by the studio. Okay? And Ray was already writing with Shaka and Al when they did You Got the Love. So, so Ollie brings uh, Ray to the studio. I mean, brings uh, uh, Stevie to the studio. And I can tell Stevie is... is is trying to check Shaka. Well, at the time, Shaka was pregnant. So that was kind of a turnoff. So when Stevie gave us the song, he didn't even give us all that you heard on record. The rest of that was made up by Shaka. Okay, but Stevie don't split publishing. And we'd already done Maybe Your Baby on an earlier album. We'd already done a Stevie tune. But basically, Rufus finished that. The bass drum is a plastic trash can I used and hit it with a mallet. Dennis Belfield played the bass through the Fender Rhodes bottom as a joke, and it had slight vibrato on it. The gorilla grunts were done to kind of thumb our noses at it because we didn't think it was a great Stevie Wonder song. We did not. We, di we did it well, and we thought it was fun, and, and when Al put the bag on it, but we thought Smoking Room, In Love We Grow, we thought In Love We Grow was a, was a classic. We thought we did better music was on that record than that particular song. When they picked that as the single, Al and Dennis and Ron were pissed. They were pissed. And they'd been through it before. For me, after being a sideman with all these other groups and groomed by Richard Evans and all that stuff, to me being in a group was I was getting out of it what I was putting into it. You didn't get that from being a sideman. No matter what you put in it, you got the same salary and you showed up for the same gigs that you were told to go to. Being in a group was a different experience for me. So I wasn't going to go anywhere. Even though I didn't think that was necessarily the, the single of a lifetime, when people say, it's like somebody saying, I attribute you for the reason I play drums. And I may not think that I'm the greatest drummer. So instead of going into all of that, I just look at him and I say, oh, thank you very much. Okay, so when people talked about, yeah, that's a great single, even if I didn't think it was a super fantabulous uh, single at the time, I said, thank you. You have to be gracious because if people like it, you can't control why people like stuff. So Dennis and the other guys left, which left me with Kevin, like I said, to me was the weakest link, and Shaka. Shaka just wanted to sing. And by now she was saying, what, what fruits of her labor, she's hearing it back on the radio. And now she's got a kid. All right. So I go get Bobby and Tony. They had just come off the road with a rock group, a group called High Voltage. They always played with rock bands and with, with horns. Okay. And nothing from nothing from Billy Preston and Out of Space, Bobby and Tony are playing on that. They were in Billy's band. 
Okay, so was Ali Brown. Okay, so we're all connected. All right, so I want the I want to I knew them in high school. We played together at Mavericks Flat on Crenshaw. We're always been on the show. Yeah. So so Bobby and Tony were friends. But the thing about Bobby and Tony is Bobby and Tony had played in other groups before where there'd been weak keyboard players. What Bobby and Tony do is they play lines together. And then what Tony does is in between the lines, he'll do a fill. Or if he's recording, he'll do an answer track, a question and answer track as he's playing a line that goes with the bass. So they make up with harmonics what they miss not having in keyboard. Shaka's vocals became more ornate and different based upon the weakness of our keyboards. She gave herself background chords that she heard that she wasn't hearing on piano. The one who gave us the chords we needed was Nate Morgan. That's the keyboard player I brought in and played on Stop By and Pack My Bags. That's Nate. He just made that shit up. You know, and the thing with Nate is that you know, he liked jazz, but he also liked the, the he was a free form thinker and he brought a different element in. And then Kevin would get added at the end. All right. Uh, it changed when we start doing more recordings. We use Gordon DeWitty to play keyboard. We use Gavin Christopher played some keyboard. He's the one who wrote Fool's Paradise. And uh, once you get started. All right. So we used other people had come in and played some keyboards, along with Kevin, too. Now, K Kevin did, did play on some recordings, and that's him playing the Fender Rhodes on Sweet Thing. But we rehearsed that. How you heard it on record was exactly how we rehearsed it, and we immediately just went and put it down. Okay? That one was fine, but it was a simple tone poem. It was a simple song, right? But for us, one of the weaker positions was that keyboard position. So it made Bobby and Tony play a different way. So if you listen to our records, you'll find it's the same with uh, Little Boy Blue. If you check out Little Boy Blue, you'll, you'll hear this one guitar, then you hear the other guitar. Or, 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 or Please Pardon Me. Tony plays old R&B chinks like Motown guitarists, but then he plays Tony, too, at the same time. You know, Tony also had what we call a water lick. He could do this arpeggiated thing with his finger. And he, he had a, a different approach, and him and Bobby were like bookends. Bobby was Memphis. When I say Memphis as a drummer, that means he's, he's on the backside of the beat. You know, it's like... It's like if you don't keep on him, he might go to sleep. It's not an energy. It's just that's his time is like right there. Tony is like Stuart Copeland. He pulls the guitars. He tends to pull time. He's, he's a pusher and puller. Or Bobby's on the backside. Where does it leave me? Shit. So now my foot has to go with the bass. My snare has to be the time. And my hi-hat go with Tony. So, you know, it's like tying me in a knot. So playing with those two guys was an experience. But the combination of that is how we came up with these grooves, all right? Or when I go into something, instead of going double time, I play it in half time, you know? And then Bobby would get a chance to do another line. Or Bobby didn't do slapping a lot of bass like everybody was doing at the time. Or he didn't fill all the spaces. Bobby would incorporate his fills within the rhythm of the song. 
He was a very wise uh, musician. You know why? Because Bobby and Tony, Nate and myself and Kevin, we always accompanied vocalists. Okay? So we know the art of accompaniment. The Rufus songs were arranged around how Shaka would sing them. Okay? So that was part of what made our sound with people because Tony had a specific sound. Bobby had a particular way to play. I had a sound on my drums. Matter of fact, when I wound up mixing a lot of the stuff, it's like, give it to Mikey, he'll eat it. Uh, I wound up mixing a lot of the stuff. They had to remind me to turn the drums up because I was always so busy making sure, every, can you hear yourself? You know, is, does that sound okay? You know? <laughs> well, I, I enjoyed the instrumentals too. Th those were crazy. Those were crazy. Sometimes, sometimes it was trying to make up a song because we were out of tunes, you know, and we had to put so many tunes on a record. And I said, so we got eight songs. So what? Oh, we need two more songs. Oh, man. I wrote Hollywood because of that. I wrote Hollywood because we needed another song, you know? And basically all I was doing was talking about the poor lost children I saw walking down Hollywood Boulevard thinking they were coming to that to the to the the, uh, the streets paved with gold, and when they found out, you know, there was an old man behind the curtain, they they were lost. So that's what Hollywood was about. So they said, "Oh, it's a great song." And well, I write it on assignment because we were short one. It's funny <laughs> well, how that works out, you know. Yeah, you, you a know. jewel out of it. Um, but probably but, my my personal favorite is this one, um, just from and and it's just you know. I mean, I like them all, but this is my favorite. And how many guys tell you that they grew up with your picture on their wall as a teenager? Because, you know, I had, when I was in middle school, I had the poster that came with this. Yeah. was on my wall with you on there. So that was above my bed uh, when I was growing up. That's, that's funny, man. Thank you very much. That's, that's nice of you. That's very cool. Um, I'm, I'm I'm proud that um, that we were able to make some songs that are still hanging out. But it's it's not just that. It's the fact that when I listen to them, I'm like, you know what? I still kind of like that. That's still kind of cool, man. You know. And I, I don't know what other thing you could that most people do that there's that you can go somewhere and turn it on and have an instant memory come right back. You know. I think that's pretty good. It's 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 almost like. If, if I'm mortal, the song's not. You know, it, it's something to, to preclude you. Uh, although it's, to me, it's not in the same league as Dog Hammarskjöld or Albert Schweitzer. You know, it, it, I, I haven't cured any major diseases, but um, let's put it this way. We have done a lot of things to play it forward. Uh, I, I must tell you, uh, Dennis Belfield, um, Ron, Al, uh, Tony, uh, Bobby, uh, Hawk, Kevin. Um, these are these are all people who help folks who have helped people, you know, who've who've passed some things on, who who've uh, who who've shown that they love music and, and have done their best. Dennis Belfield too, when when he went with Chris Christopherson, or when I saw Dennis and. Uh, I think it was it Ron or with Al, we're playing with Three Dog Night for a while. And then um, 
we got back together myself, Dennis, Ron, and Alan played on Brian and Brenda's stuff. And then we played with the Brooklyn Dreams, the guys that were backing up Donna Summer. So we, we, I hung out even after they left. They were still my friends. We never lost, lost contact and we did things together. On Brenda Russell's album, it was so good, so right, and only for one night, all those songs. Ron Stockard's playing on those records too because Ron could be a chameleon and he copped some of Brenda's style. And the more stylized I made the records, like the way Brenda played, the better she could get up off the piano to be able to sing the songs. Because a lot of songwriters who play for themselves, like Roberta Flack, it's hard to get her off the piano because she's given herself all that she needs. Okay, but your, your cadence also comes from how you play as far as your vocal cadence, because certain things are hard to do and play at the same time. So sometimes if you can get the person off the instrument, they might try a few other things vocally if they're not having to think about playing too. But these, these, each of these people I mentioned were capable of making good music, writing a song, producing a record, or, or giving somebody good guidance. And I'm very proud of that. I talk to Al all the time. Uh, Ron Stockard has passed away. Um, uh, I don't know the circumstances, but I was in contact with Ron. Um, Dennis has been in Nashville for quite a few years, and uh, he's played with many people and written so many more songs after he left Rufus. Uh, I loved it when he was with Chris Christopherson, and, and uh, that that was good too. But um, but you've played shows with Bobby too. Uh, Bobby, Bobby and Tony, well, Bobby uh, produced Renee and Angela. And uh, uh, matter of fact, we played on uh, Janet Jackson's first album on A&M that Renee and, uh, and Angela had something to do with and Bobby. Bobby moved to Japan. He even brought Tony and I over to Japan. We played on some Japanese artists' records. We played on Renee and Angela stuff. I played... Angela wound up producing Ron Isley after she wound up going with him. I played on Smooth Sailing. I played on the Isley Brothers album. Um, I played on a lot of people's records. You've, um, you've been on so many. You've been on like all my favorite female vocalist records, you know, whether it's Angela Winbush, Gladys Knight, Shaka Khan, an amazing group of female vocalists, and Natalie. Um, yeah. What, what can you? tell viewers about Natalie Cole's talent and, you know, talk about her a little bit. I have, I have such a reverence for that. Um, you know, when, when, when Natalie and I were together, when we were in the studio, it's like, um, it's, it's one thing to, to know you know how to do something or you're professional at it. The only thing that limits it is whoever you're doing it with. You know, if you if you you know if two people are playing baseball and one guy can hit and the other one can't, it's there's there's a weakness there. With with Natalie, I could be my best producer because it, anything I ask her for, she could give me. Natalie was consummate professional, but her phrasing and her timing, being able to sing songs from her father's era or now. She had an innate wisdom of that. And even, you know, when she had a little sinus 
problem and got a little nasally. She knew how to take in more air to help her higher notes. She sang off the axis of the mic. Naturally, she knew good mic technique. And I attribute that to uh, Chuck and Marvin. Uh, Marvin Yancey and Chuck Jackson trained her on that because both of them knew exactly how to do that. But uh, Natalie had great, um, great concentration, great ability, uh, everything from punching in to um, the way she tests you is that if you let her get away with something, she, she, all of a sudden you wonder why she was weird. It's because she didn't consider you to be truthful. And sometimes I told her, honey, sometimes it's not because they're not truthful. It's because they may not know when you're 100%. Okay? You, you like me because I know. Okay? But if there's someone that doesn't know, don't be mad at them. <laughs> she, she, was, she got mad at Tommy LaPuma a couple of times doing Unforgettable. Because she did some things that she didn't think were cool. And Tommy thought it was great. Well, because Tommy just liked the sound of her voice. Tommy liked Natalie. All right? So I said, don't get mad at Tommy. He's a sweetheart. So she, she forgave him. But that was one of her tests. You know, you correct her. She expected to be, if you're a professional, that's how we deal with each other. If you're kissing my ass, if you're patronizing me, if you're giving me that diva stuff, I will mess you up because people don't know that as cool as she was, if you weren't right with Natalie, Natalie was mean. She was very mean. She wouldn't say anything, but that look on her face, you're like, Oh shit. What did I, what happened? You know? And, and then it's like, you, you didn't talk to her for 10 minutes. You know, you couldn't make excuses to her. Because she was there to throw down 150%. And if you weren't there to do the same, don't say shit to her. So we got along fine because we were both slightly OCD as far as our, our craft is concerned. Her, her, oh, I listened to now um, uh, to uh, uh, Our Love is Here to Stay. That's with my uncle playing piano. And uh, Johnny Mandel did the, did, uh, did the strings. And... Uh, her phrasing. Sometimes I'll just put that record on, not as someone who had anything to do with it, but just as a, as a listener to who loved his, his wife's voice. And I'll just sit there and I'll go, oh, man, sing it. Just sing that stuff. It was just so sweet, man. After we finished that record, me, Tommy, and Schmidt, I don't know what David was doing. I think David was still pushing voices that care for Desert Storm or something else. David was always more in and out than us. He was always busier doing a lot of other things for, for whatever David was doing. But when we were there working on Natalie, that was the only thing that Tommy and Al and myself were doing at the time. And when we finished it and sat there with Natalie and we did the playback, before, we did some basic sequencing. Uh, also, there's more, a couple more tunes that were cut than got on the record too. I mean, I recorded in 26 songs. Okay, so anyway, um, we listened to it back. And by the time we were done, me and Tommy and Al and Natalie, we're all crying, man. We're just weeping. You know why? Because no matter who heard it, who bought it, it none of that mattered. It's like we, we felt we'd done her dad, the songs, 
we've done justice. We've done it. We thought we did a good job. It's not like, oh, I did a good job. It's like, oh, thank you, God. We were very thankful. And I remember Tommy, we were just crying. We were just like bawling like babies. But it, it wasn't of sadness. It wasn't a cry of sadness. It was um, those moments in music that sometimes save your life or give you that great uh, exultation. You know, and sometimes you've created this space for yourself. It's, it's almost like, you know, once you've tasted it, you have to taste it again. You know, once I catch a groove, you know, like playing drums, I've been in situations where I've been outside of my body, where it's lifted me to a whole nother place. Once you've given that to yourself, I'm like a junkie. It's like I spend the rest of my life doing that again. But it, it's not something you find. It's actually something that you could create. So because of, of Natalie and our efforts together, we created something which, which was the sum total of all of our efforts. You know, because for me, when people say, oh, you did these songs, Nat King Cole songs, I said, no, Nat didn't write them. That, Nat didn't write all those songs. I said, Other, my mother sang those songs. Those songs meant something to me or listened to Johnny Mercer or... Um, uh, 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 certain songs that I'll listen to that I heard as a kid or even listen to Summer Place. There's a summer place or old Sherry, uh, Sherry, uh, 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 baby. I go right to, yeah, I go right to the little girl I was sweet on. You know, it, they all have memories for you. So, so, so Natalie, oh, when I think about it, I just get emotional. Was she, was she on your radar when she first came out, uh, you know, with Inseparable and all that? Or did you come to realize up her later? You remember, my, my mentor did La Costa, did, did a lot of arranging for a lot of Natalie's songs back when Marvin and Chuck were doing her. So I was very familiar with her. Matter of fact, in 1975, I'm trying to think what year it was. Oh, Rufus, we were in Tokyo, Tokyo Music Festival. And Natalie was also on the show. And at that time, David Garbaldi had left Tower Power and he was Natalie's drummer. And uh, we were there in Japan. And I remember trying to date Natalie in Tokyo. And she said that she had a man, uh, uh, Chuck, uh, no, Marvin Yancey, back in Chicago. And I knew Marvin from Jerry Butler's Writer's Workshop. So I, I, already, I already knew uh, uh, the, the folks that she was talking about. So uh, I, I was sweet on her then. I don't know how much of it was um, animal attraction or maybe, maybe I was also in love with the voice as well. Same thing with Shaka. You know, there was a time that I thought I was in love with Shaka. Uh, I think I was in love with what Shaka's voice did to me and the fact that, that we were enjoying together in something where we made things together. It's, it, it, gets, it gets pretty intimate um, as far as emotionally when, when people are, are, are living together like a family, you know, and, and they go through those changes. With Natalie, I was really in, into Nat, you know. I was into Elisa Regina, the great singer from Brazil. You know, I remember I met her and... And a Brazilian looked at me, he says, you're in love with her voice. He said, she's, she's okay person, but you're in love with her voice. 
and you know, and I am, I'm a romantic. It's like it's you get seduced by it. Yeah. You get seduced by it. And it's like being in love with love, you know, or when people told me how sexy Shaka was back in the day, I'm like, I remember Shaka less of how she looked and more of how she performed. So everybody has different things that, that they take away from it. But, um, but Natalie was, was a, definitely a, um, a love affair. I met with her after I moved back from France. I was in France for four years as musical director for a guy named Michel Jonez. He was on Warner's France. He was kind of like their version of Neil Diamond. He was an actor and a poet and a singer. And uh, I lived in Paris. And uh, when I came back from uh, Michel, I had a manager at the time, Frank DeCaro, and I asked him to find me some production. And I wanted an appointment with Natalie uh, because I knew she was going to do a new record. And this is when she'd uh, gone in with Michael Master to do Miss You Like Crazy. And I wanted to get on that album. So I had a meeting set up with her at uh, Le Mobile, which was the mobile recording truck. It was parked out at Kendon, out in uh, Burbank. And I met her and we listened to some songs I played her in the truck. And I was checking her out. <laughs> and she was clean. In other words, she was no longer on drugs. She'd kind of gotten her life together. She had a place that she'd gotten. So it's pretty stable. And she was gigging quite often. So it was a different person than what general public had led me. About what year was that, would you say? That was 89. And uh, that's when I came back from France. I'd been there since 86. So I came back in 89. That's after I did, a, 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 what was it? I think Piano in the Dark with Brenda Russell and Le Restaurant, yeah, those songs. I did, I did that, that album with Brenda. And then I think after that, I, uh, I, was, def- I was definitely in Paris, 86 through 89. So I came back in 89 and then uh, I played some songs for Natalie. She liked them. Uh, we worked the songs out. She invited me up to Tahoe, up to Harris, where she's performing there. I remember going up there, I took my two kids with me. And for some reason, she was really cool with my two kids, Elizabeth and Kyle, my middle two. And she was just a sweetheart. And I just start, I start dating her. And then we start going over the songs. And then next thing I know, I'm babysitting Robbie, her son while she goes out on the road. And uh, then she's asking me to come visit her out on the road. It just turned into that. And then she starts asking me for advice. And and her manager I know, Dan Cleary and some other folks. And then then I see that she's in a quandary because she'd done the pink Cadillac on uh, EMI Manhattan. And she was gonna do this, uh, this last record you know, with Miss You Like Crazy and a matter of fact, some other songs that we did. Um, And uh, she's trying to figure out somewhere new, a new direction or a new label to go to, and even a new agent, because she was with Triad at the time. So again, you're still talking to the same person, like I told you, instead of going after girls, I'm sitting around with rack jobbers and promotional people. So in other words, my come up in the music business 
was more from the people that actually did it than from entertainers. Entertainers were my friends and we hung out together, but the actual learning of the business was given me by the people who did it every day. And that's who I learned from. And basically I gave her an idea. Uh, one, uh, after we'd finished the uh, album with Miss You Like Crazy on it, to, to do some changes, to do some things. And one was the contract was going to be up with EMI Manhattan. And where do you go after that? What direction are you going in? Music is changing. You know, you're becoming a certain age. What are you going to do? And uh, we always talked about her doing her dad's stuff. But the worry from a child like that is, am I making my bones off my dad? And by that time, I said, no, you've established your own career. Okay. You don't have to sing your father's tune to be known by anybody. All right. So that's not the case. It, ha it has to be for a reason. And the reason she wanted to do it was to say goodbye. I found that when her dad was passing away, instead of her mother bringing the family together, she sent her away. Okay, and, and the deal is, is that I'm not going to go into the reasons why, but she never closed the door. She was daddy's girl. So there was something in Natalie which was unanswered. So something had to come out. It was tried a couple times in live to sing with one song of her, her and her dad up on the screen. It wasn't totally put together, but it was done in a certain way that she saw that people did like that. The next thing was, after you finish Miss You Like Crazy and Pink Cadillac, where do you go from that if you're going to a new label? What are you going to take to them? There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.